This is C-SPAN's The Weekly. I'm Steve Scully in Washington. After spending more than two decades in a federal prison, Alice Marie Johnson is now free. Back in 2018, with the help of Kim Kardashian West, she convinced the president to commute her sentence. And more recently, one day after her speech at the Republican National Convention, President Trump giving her a full and complete pardon. She is a mother and now a grandmother, author of the book After Life, My Journey from Incarceration to Freedom, her story in just a moment. But first, this is what she told the RNC convention in late August. In 1996, I began serving time in prison, life plus 25 years. I had never been in trouble. I was a first-time nonviolent offender. What I did was wrong. I made decisions that I regret. Some say, you do the crime, you do the time. However, that time should be fair and just. We've all made mistakes. None of us want to be defined forever based on our worst decision. While in prison, I became a playwright, a mentor, a certified hospice volunteer, an ordained minister, and received the Special Olympics Event Coordinator of the Year Award for my work with disabled women. Because the only thing worse than unjustly imprisoning my body is trying to imprison my mind. Alice Marie Johnson joining us from Memphis, Tennessee. Let's begin where your story essentially begins in the early and mid-1990s. Where were you? What were you doing? Okay. Uh, Thank you for having me on, Steve. I was at a very difficult time in my life. I just recently got divorced. I was a mother, now a single mother of five, with absolutely no support from my ex-husband. I started gambling. I met someone and uh, I was introduced to gambling. I never, because I I was married at such a young age, Steve, only 15, and I didn't really have a life that much, you know, as a, not an, an, an outside life other than just my children and my husband. And uh, I found myself single. I started gambling. I thought that was the, the exciting. Got a gambling addiction. Lost my job. And uh, reality is set in. I'm about to lose my house. I had to file bankruptcy. And in the midst of all of these things going on, my youngest son was killed in an accident where my 14-year-old son, he was only 12, my 14-year-old son was on his scooter. So crazy things are going on. I'm almost out of my head. I don't even know which way to turn. I'm jobless. And an offer came to be what is called a telephone mule. That means I'm receiving messages being passed, and I made a very bad decision to be involved in a drug conspiracy. Having never used drugs and know anything about drugs whatsoever, when everything fell apart, um, I was offered three to five years to plead guilty. My attorney told me that I should not plead guilty, go to trial. I didn't know about the conspiracy laws. I went to trial a six-week trial, was found guilty of drug attempted possession, uh, drug conspiracy, which comes with money laundering, and I was sentenced to life plus 25 years in prison. And uh, that was a shock, 
Steve, because I didn't even know a life sentence was even on the table. So let's go through a couple of those moments. First, going back to your job at FedEx. You were fired. Why were you fired, and what were you thinking at that moment? I was fired because of my expense uh, my expense report. I didn't get it in in time. Um, it was it was just a crazy thing that I did. I didn't I didn't turn I didn't turn my expense report in within those thirty days because I had you know how you have leftover money from your expense money and um, I didn't turn it in in time and so that was really the basis of of my getting fired uh, because I was a manager there and so I didn't know what to do as I say just being a regular situation if I had not had so much pressure on me and I'm not making excuses for my behavior because a lot of people go through hard times and they don't make that decision like I made and it was a very very bad decision how old were you when you became pregnant with your first child? I was 15. I was a teenage mother, and I was married. I was uh, six months pregnant when I got married. And your background, you grew up in Mississippi. How did you end up in Tennessee? Well, uh, Memphis is only about 10 minutes from where I grew up at, in Olive Branch, Mississippi. And it was after my last child, I left my husband and then we had such a tumultuous relationship. It was on, off. Um, he had a couple of children uh, doing our marriage by two other women. We break up, get back together. I didn't, it was just bad. It was bad. So I moved to Memphis uh, from my hometown because we'd broken up, but we ended up getting back together. He moved to Memphis, and it just never worked out. And so we divorced after 19 years of marriage. Was he ever abusive to you? Uh, yes. In fact, my hearing in my right ear is because of a blow to my head. Um, it's not as good as the left ear. But it was mainly the mental abuse. I, I think I would almost have preferred the physical as opposed to the mental abuse that I respect. That I was that I was exposed to, or that I had to endure during our our marriage. And then during this time period, you declare bankruptcy in 1991, and then yes. come into contact with this cocaine trafficking organization. How yes. did that all come about? Um, it was a it was a cousin who was dating a man, and then I had a um, she approached me about it, and I I literally told. One of my co-defendants, because I thought it was crazy. Why would she even approach me about something like that? But they made it seem very simple. It's just, it's just your telephone. All you've got to do is, when they call you, you tell them that this is the number that they can call. And I found out that many uh, do the same thing. But not knowing anything about a drug organization, uh, the first time I got a thousand dollars. It kept my lights on and put food on the table. So you were pretty desperate at that point. Oh, I was beyond desperate. I didn't know what to do. I had a, a child in college and four more children at home with me that I was trying to take care of. I didn't even know where my ex-husband was. He, We had no more communication for a, a while. I had no help with my children whatsoever. You were then arrested in 1993, and I, I want to ask you, the moment you were arrested, 
What was going through your mind? Steve, it was like, what in the world have I done? Everything hit me, especially when I saw what the charges were that were coming against me. And just trying to get an attorney, my family hired an attorney for me. I didn't have any money. Uh, even even after I was found uh, guilty, they looked at my whole, they went through my uh, everything with a fine-tooth comb. I didn't have any hidden money. I didn't have that I wasn't living a lifestyle or anything else of a drug queen pen, and that's what I'm being labeled as a drug queen pen, and didn't even have $500 in the bank, and uh, definitely didn't have a house paid for, a car paid for. I'm in survival mode, and I didn't know that um, people could testify to drug quantities that didn't even exist. That's why I have a charge of attempted drug possession and not drug possession, because it was based upon testimony. And then why a life sentence plus, what, 20 more years, 25, 25 more years? years? 25 years, because under the mandatory minimum sentencing guidelines, I was convicted of a much smaller amount, and uh, they call it relevant conduct. So at the end, doing sentencing, uh, they're able to say an estimated crazy amount when I was found guilty of attempted possession of a fraction of that amount. So that you can't do that anymore. The jury has to find you guilty of whatever they're sentenced, whatever you're sentenced to. But at the time, I was sentenced to what they were able to say an estimated amount based upon testimony of co-defendants who were trying to escape my very sentence, all of those who testified against me had long criminal records, so they knew how this goes. They knew um, that that if you testify well, you're rewarded for that testimony. And and so I'm not trying to say that I was innocent of anything, because as the law stood, that's what conspiracy was. You're convicted in 1996, and then in 1997, you were sentenced to a federal correctional facility. Yes. The day you walked in. What was going through your mind then? Well, as soon as I was convicted, which happened to be on Halloween, I remember the agents, as I'm being handcuffed and led out in my ears, saying, trick-or-treat, trick-or-treat, trick-or-treat. And um, they took me to a jail cell, so I was immediately remanded into custody in 1996. And when those steel doors, when I heard those doors clink behind me, because up to that point, I really didn't think that I was going to be found guilty because I knew I had not been in possession of anything. I was in possession of phone records, and it really hit me at that moment that I'm about to be separated from my children. And I still didn't know until right before sentencing that I was going to receive a life sentence. All I could think about was my children. I had a teenage son that I was leaving at home. My elderly parents, I couldn't think of anything but my family and what they were going through. What were they telling you? What were you telling them, both your children and your parents? Well, I I was telling them what my attorney was telling me, that it's going to be okay. We're going to appeal this. We're going to win this. I still didn't know what time I was facing. Um, I was telling them, I'm going to be okay. I'm going to be okay because I, I didn't want them to to think that I wasn't going to be okay. And so I, I just kept telling them that we're going to win this at the appeal, all these things that went wrong in my trial, we're going to win it. You're in prison for 
the rest of your life, at least at that moment when you were sentenced. How did your story gain national attention and when? It started the first attention that it gained was in 2013. Um, I, the ACLU picked me, uh, selected me for their ad campaign to end mass incarceration. They spotlighted people who were serving life sentences who had not committed a violent crime. So I was starting to gain attention through their ad campaign. But when it really gained national gained national attention was when Kim Kardashian West saw my story. Uh, I didn't, in fact, I didn't know anything about social media, Steve. So I didn't know about that platform of social media. I did a video op-ed that went viral uh, with a with Mike there, uh, M-I-C, with Mike. And um, she saw it this when they told me that it had gone viral, it really scared me because not knowing anything about technological terms and the Internet, I thought that I had introduced a virus into the Internet. That scared me worse than anything. <laughs> so she saw it and she retweeted. She tweeted out, this is so unfair, and she put together a team of attorneys to, uh, to fight to bring me home. Did you even know who Kim Kardashian was? No. When I was contacted by Sean Holly, who is Kim's attorney, uh, I was only given the information that a very uh, famous and, you know, a very well-known woman wanted to help, uh, wanted to hire her. And if I wanted her to to come in on my case, and I said, let me think about it. Yes. <laughs> Didn't take me no time. I was just kidding. But I had my daughter Google who Sean Holly's clients were. And so she told me, uh, she said, she gave me the list. And I said, that's Chris. I know it's Chris Jenner. It's got to be her because that was one of her famous clients. And my daughter said, what if it's Kim Kardashian? And I said, Kim, who? <laughs> and so she had to explain to me who Kim Kardashian was because remember when I went to prison, Kim was, Kim was a little girl. What was life like for you in prison? What was a typical day like? It was getting, it was very regimented. Um, I'd wake up early in the morning, and that was my prayer time. I love praying uh, before the sun came up, as I, the sun is coming up. But uh, it was getting ready, having breakfast, getting ready, going to work, uh, coming back, possibly going to exercise or gym. But for me, it was always some activities that I was involved in. I'm either rehearsing for plays, I'm getting ready for some event, whether it's a reentry event that's taking place, or I'm going to the hospice floor to sit with women who were, who were dying in prison, or I'm working on something. I worked with the, uh, on a Special Olympics event that just gained huge attention, um, because I, you know, I, I really want to involve the women who were on the fringes, who couldn't do things in prison the way that we did. So. I helped coordinate the uh, first-ever Special Olympics for disabled women in prison. And you talked about this in your convention speech at the Republican National Convention. Walk us through the journey that you took in terms of trying to figure out, if you ever did get out of prison, what you would do with the rest of your life. Well, you know, you don't really think about what I knew that I would fight for women. I knew I'd fight for the people who were in prison. Uh, because people were fighting for me, and many of them felt so hopeless. And I wanted, if I ever got out, I thought, I am going to be their voices. If the Lord gives me any type of a platform, I am going to help them gain 
you know, to try to help fight for others' freedom. This is C-SPAN's The Weekly. I'm Steve Scully in Washington, and we continue our conversation with Alice Marie Johnson. She spent 21 years, seven months, and six days in a federal prison. She was released on June 6, 2018. Walk us through how that all unfolded and what was going through your mind then. Well, Kim Kardashian had already been working relentlessly um, on my case. She had solicited the help of Ivanka Trump and of Jared Kushner, uh, and they were fighting to get her an, an audience with the president. And she actually, see got that audience with the president on my birthday, May 30th. And uh, seven days later, Kim was the one who gave me the news. Even though it was all over the news, I just shut everything down. When they were telling me, Miss Alice, you're on the news, I went to my room, shut the door, and looked out of the window. And then uh, I went to lunch. <laughs> It was hamburger day, and we only had hamburgers once a week. So I went to lunch. I shut everything down before I could take the first bite. I took the first bite, hadn't even chewed, and I heard my name. When I went back to the unit, uh, my attorneys, and then it was Kim on the phone, too. And she was. She thought I knew that I had been granted clemency, that my sentence had been commuted. And she was basically like, we did it. I'm like, did what? I was scared. My heart was beating. She said, You're, you can go home. Oh, my goodness, Steve. I went crazy screaming and jumping. I could hear the women on the other side of the of the unit beating on the, you know, just screaming, celebrating with me. It seems like I was the only one there who didn't know. Uh, so that was that was something. But when when I left out of there, I left I left out of there within an hour and a half of 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 getting the news. They were telling me to report to R&D. When they announced over that loudspeaker, because they had locked all of the women, the, the prison held about 1,600 women. They had locked everyone in their cells uh, because of so much media and stuff that I didn't even know was out there. And uh, when they announced my name, women in every window was beating on the window, stomping the floor, screaming, calling my name, Miss Alice, don't forget about us. And it just really had bro- it broke me down to just look around. It was like I was in surround sound, hearing those women stomp and scream my name. And when I walked out of that door and went, had to go across the street, I saw my family on the other side because they would only allow one car on the premises. When I saw my family, I don't, th- I don't remember if I let the vehicle stop. I started running across that road because that's what it felt like I was really free to see my family on the other side. And there was so much media there to cover that story. And, of course, your family grew during the time that you were incarcerated. Yes, uh, it grew. I had grandchildren I'd never even hugged before. I had a great-grandson that was there waiting for me. It it just broke me down uh, to just really be free. What did you tell Kim Kardashian West? Uh, you know, just thanks, thank you, Kim, was just not enough. I can never forget what Kim did for me because Kim truly put everything on the line. She didn't care, she said, if she could save my life. She didn't care about the naysayers who were saying that she shouldn't go to the White House, and she did all of that for me to 
She just put it on the line, her brand, everything on the line. That wasn't popular. That wasn't for any ratings. In fact, people were uh, coming after her for even going there. But she said she didn't care anything about that. My life, by that time, we'd become good friends because I'd been talking to her on the phone, and we've just bonded. And, you know, she sees me as a person, as, as a friend. Kim, so I'm glad that I did know Kim as a celebrity because when I met her, I met her as a friend. You have now been free for more than two years, delivering a speech at the Republican National Convention, and then this from the president giving you a full and complete pardon. You were in the Oval Office. Let's listen. We're giving Alice a full pardon. I just told her. We didn't even discuss it. We just, uh, you were out there. I saw you in the audience last night. And I asked the folks if you could bring Alice over. We're going to give a full pardon. We're going to do it right now. That means you have been fully pardoned. That's the ultimate thing that can happen that means you can do whatever you want in life and just keep doing the great job you're doing you were seated next to the resolute desk in the oval office what's going through your mind oh steve what was going through my mind is i'm about to be set totally free i was free but i still was on probation and now i'm about to be totally free And the same person who granted my freedom from prison is now setting me is is setting me free from the collateral consequences of being a ex felon. Um, This is totally total redemption, totally restored life. And it was my heart was felt like it was just I was going to just burst. I just I really just wanted to just scream and shout and cry the reporters were there and uh i'm still this is still so surreal to me and every every time i think about it i just say thank you lord thank you lord what did you tell the president and what did he tell you he told me he said you've um, he basically was telling me how proud he was of the work that i've been doing and that uh there he know that there's other others like me that's in prison he said but there's only one alice johnson and uh he wanted to help identify some other people like that who 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 were like me which is what you said at the republican convention this is now your life's work so what are you doing what is the next chapter in alice marie johnson's life well as you said i've written a book uh my memoir afterlife my journey from incarceration to freedom. But I also, earlier this year, before COVID, before the protests and riots, before all of that, I launched a foundation called Taking Action for Good, TAG. And anyone who'd like to look at it is, you can go to takingactionforgood.org and they can pull it up and see the work that we're doing. And there are lots of people who are supporting it. Uh, uh, our organization like Ben and Felicia Horowitz, Don Freeman with Securus Foundation. There's two main pillars of, of what I'm doing, and that's um, I'm recognizing others who are taking action for good, but I'm telling the stories. I'm, I'm telling the stories of people who've been impacted by uh, our criminal justice system, and also I'm telling the stories of people who are taking action for good. But one of the one of the the other things I'm doing is I'm working on criminal justice reform, clemencies, and a very, very important piece, and that is reentry. I want to be able to help those returning citizens 
get their freedom legs. I'm using a different approach based upon my experience, and if not me, then who? After spending all of this time and seeing prison become a revolving door for so many and hearing the stories of why they failed, I want to be able to set them up for success when they come out. So I'm very excited about it. I'm excited about the work that I'm doing with it. I used to say in prison to the women that if you can do good, that became my motto, if you can do good, do it. And I saw the ability to help change prison culture. That's one of the things that the staff members will tell you that I was able to do in that dark place, literally change prison culture by taking action for good in prison. So this is really an extension of what I know could work in something like a prison. I'm extending this and using the platform that I've been blessed with to take action for good. And what other, what better name than taking action for good? And the acronyms are TAG because we are tagging others to take action for good, too. As you know, your trial, your incarceration took place in the 1990s at a time when there was a a big push for mandatory minimum sentencing on those who were convicted of charges like drug drug charges. Are you an example of what's wrong with mandatory minimum sentences? Yes, very much so. Mandatory minimum sentencing, it puts a rubber stamp on everyone. It takes nothing into consideration. Um, if this is what you're convicted of and someone else is convicted of the same thing, you're you're looked at the same way. Um, I just I just know that it did not take a life sentence for me to learn my lesson and I was no longer I was definitely not a public safety risk. I was on bond for two years before I even went to prison and uh, had no issues whatsoever. There are so many people who have served out what would be a just sentence. So after that, it's it's injustice that people are locked up because, you know, they commit a crime. Um, They are kept there far too long in many cases because people are mad at them. And and that's that's just not right. You're missing so much talent, so much talent in prison, so many contributors who would be a positive contribution to their communities, and plus so many mothers and fathers who are being separated from their families, from their children, way too long. And the streets, other people are raising their children. Too many cases, the streets raise them. Do you have a sense of how many other Alice Johnsons there are in the federal prison system? Well, I can just tell you thousands. It's way too many. That many? It's, 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 it really is. It's not a small little pocket of just exceptional people. We may not have did, had the same accomplishments in prison, but there are people in prison who have incredible accomplishments, who have completely rehabilitated and posed no safety risk. Why are they still there? You see, the difference between... The people that are being locked up now doing COVID, I was hearing a lot of pushback from people who were saying, look at what is happening. You're letting these people out of not putting them in jail and they're committing other crimes. This is not the same situation. These people that I'm talking about have a proven record in prison, and they have been assessed as having no safety risk. So why you didn't assess those people doing COVID. You were trying to keep the prisons, I mean, the jails down to stop the spread of COVID. 
Well, you now guess some of the most vulnerable population that is in a Petri dish, literally, because it's pretty hard to social distance in prison. Let these people go who who pose no safety risk and who have completely rehabilitated, who are sitting there because of some outdated mandatory minimum sentencing laws, who are sitting there for far too long because of bills from laws that were passed from previous era that has that has been proven that it's not working. You're not going to make people be less less uh, less of a safety risk by keeping them there for 20 more years. They've already served 20. Many have even aged out of any possibility of crime. I'm going to tell you, for instance, my co-defendant, Curtis McDonald, is a 70-year-old black man who just had COVID. We were on the same case. He has an excellent uh, rehabilitation record, yet he can't even get compassionate release. So it's people like him and like LaShonda Hall came in as a very young woman. You've got so many people. William Underwood, so many people. Farrell Scott, it just breaks my heart to the people who are still in prison. Let me conclude with a personal question. It has been quite a journey for you over the last 25 years. How has all of this changed Alice Marie Johnson? It's changed me to be more compassionate myself toward people and to to no longer I don't care what uh what I don't care who the person is, what race, creed, their religion, whatever, that people are people. People are people and it's it's changed me in in how I look at criminal justice reform, second chances and true redemption. I can never turn my back on this. It is my life's mission. As long as I have the strength I am going to keep fighting for them. Center stage at the Republican National Convention and the author of her story, After Life, My Journey from Incarceration to Freedom, Alice Johnson. She is joining us from Memphis, Tennessee. Thank you for being with us. Thank you for having me on today. And I'm Steve Scully in Washington. We appreciate you listening.